Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Angela Saini talks about the return of race science in her new book, Superior. Angela Saini presents science programmes for the BBC and her writing has appeared in The New Scientist, The Guardian, The Sunday Times, Scientific American and Wired. She has a master's degree in engineering from Oxford University where she was the chair of the Student Union's Anti-Racist Committee and is a former fellow at MIT. Angela's work has won a string of national and international journalism awards. Her last book, Inferior, was Physics World's Book of the Year. Her first book, Geek Nation, was published by Hodder and Staunton in 2011, and both of those books you'd have heard us talk about on previous Little Atoms. In 2018, she was voted by her peers as one of the most respected journalists in the UK. Angela's latest book is Superior, The Return of Race Science. Angela, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here again. (laughs) (laughs) So, as the subtitle says, the, the idea of this book is about the return of the idea of race science. And one of the themes of the book is, you know, how we can't distinguish the concept of race from ideas of power. And to begin with, you illustrate that at the very beginning of the book, by a trip to the British Museum. So tell us why. (laughs) Well, the British Museum is very dear to my heart because I've been going there regularly since I was a child, as do many kids in London. And on the surface, you know, it it is one of the major tourist landmarks in London. And on the surface, it's kind of a symbol of the grandeur and magnificence of civilizations all over the world. But the question that you have to ask yourself, especially I've asked myself as an adult, is why are all these objects here and not in the places where they were originally came from, wherever that is, whether that's Easter Island or India or China. You know, why are all these objects, why have they all found their way here? And the story of that, of course, is one of power, that they were bought here often by people who had colonised the places where they had come from or explorers who found nothing wrong in bringing them back to Britain because they had the power to do that, they had the means to do that, and then keep them and claim them. And, of course, there are wrangles around this, like with the Elgin marbles, um, like... You know, there are multiple, the Rosetta Stone, there are multiple artefacts in the British Museum that countries have asked to be returned and that aren't returned. Um, And that, again, reflects power hierarchies now and a kind of, I think, in some ways, a cultural arrogance, this idea that Britain can look after these objects now that they're (laughs) better than you can, so we will keep them here. And for me, this reflects the history of race science in a way, this idea that Britain and 
Western powers claimed the mantle of superiority, of kind of the height of civilization, that somehow history is over, they have won, and they are the peak of civilization. Humans will never get any better than this, than what the Greeks achieved or the Romans achieved or what Britain has achieved. This is the pinnacle. And somehow they have the right then to decide what happens to the rest of the world. Now, we're obviously going to talk about the concept of race itself, but let's establish what you mean by race science before we do that. It's difficult to to explain this. It's funny, I was giving, um, I did an event at the Royal Institution the other week when the book came out and I was asked this question and I thought about it for a bit. They said, what is race science? And I thought... It's science because it's kind of woven in to the bedrock of modern Western science, this idea that race is real and that there is a racial hierarchy. So from the birth of modern Western science at the Enlightenment, it was taken as an assumption that there was not only a gender hierarchy with women below men as the intellectual and physical inferiors of men, but also that different kinds of people represented perhaps different breeds of human and that we could be slotted in underneath the white European. And that idea, although very much built on and elaborated on in subsequent centuries, then in the 20th century pulled away from quite significantly after the Second World War, hasn't completely left us behind, I think. And you can still see tinges of it in genetics, particularly in population genetics, in medicine, running right the way through the science of humans, of biology and behaviour and psychology. There is still this idea that human variation can be mapped in some way through population groups rather than through individual variation. And this is somehow meaningful, not just in superficial ways like skin colour, but somehow more deeply meaningful than that. And it, race itself as a, as a scientific concept obviously has, as you said, a relatively recent history. The Enlightenment was a period of time when, in fact, you know, Linnaeus is before that, but, you know, when we, as scientists, were classifying everything. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the, their way of looking at nature was to, you know, make big lists of it and put them into <laughs> into hierarchies. Um, so there's a guy, uh, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. So I'd never come across him before. So who's he? So he was a kind of naturalist explorer. And um, he is the source of our current term that we still use, Caucasian. So Caucasian on the surface should mean people from the Caucasus. What he did was he was comparing the skulls of different races or racial groups. And he thought the people from the Caucasus were the most beautiful of all and he defined Caucasian then, you know, this kind of breed of the most beautiful people on earth as everyone from Western Europe to Northern India, which is obviously not just within the Caucasus, it's a much broader area than that. But that kind of, again, speaks to the arbitrariness of race that even within the classifications that people came up with, and everyone had very different classifications, that the terminology they used, the ideas that they used, were sometimes just particular to them. Some people would classify by colour, some people would pick out particular population groups. And it was quite random. And this, again, was quite random. Caucasian Obviously, if it means all the way to North India, that would mean I am Caucasian. It means both of us, yeah. Yes, it means both of us. Although to look at, if we were to go out in the street, people would say, Angela, you are Indian or brown and you are white European. They would call you Caucasian, but not me Caucasian, even though the original way that Blumenbach meant it included me. And this is an idea that has been played around with so much throughout history. So, for example, in the history of America, this is a story I don't include in the book, but I was fascinated to read it. So in 
the US. The US did, in the 19th century, introduce laws that banned immigration from certain countries. So one of the very first racially specific immigration laws in the US was the Chinese Exclusion Act. I think I think that's what it is. It's not in the book and I'm, I'm recalling from memory now. And this meant that certain Asian groups were not welcome into the country. And there were people who made challenges to this. There were people who said uh, there was a case where a man who was of East Asian descent said, look, I have white skin just like you, I should be allowed into the country because I have white skin. And they said, no, but you're not Caucasian. And then an Indian, I think it was a Brahmin man or some high caste Indian man said, well, I do not have white skin, but I am Caucasian by that definition. So can I get in? And they said no. And they kind of fixed it again. So whatever the politics of the time demands, you can see these categories being shifted and you just see how malleable they can be in the hands of the people who have power, just as they have always been. They have always been quite arbitrary. They feel real to us now, depending on the society that we live in. But you go to another country and suddenly your racial classification changes. And very few of us fit firmly in a box. And that box is the same wherever we are in the world. Oh, thank God we don't live in a world now where America's immigration policy is based on where a person comes <laughs> from. Um, and I joke, but what you've just described about you know the American immigration policy in the 19th century mm-hmm. seems like ancient history. But in this in the book, obviously you know not even talking about you know Donald Trump now. There's a story from the 90s about an Egyptian man who and this turns it on its head that basically the American immigration service basically said, you're white. Yes, because of this Caucasian definition, people who come from North Africa and the Middle East are classified, or at least from North Africa, were classified as white. And actually, when you know, even the way we think about Egypt is very strange in popular imagination. You watch Cleopatra, Elizabeth Taylor is playing Cleopatra. So we do have these kind of weird ideas about what it means to be Egyptian that have played out in popular culture, partly because the discovery of these very complex, remarkable civilizations in Egypt meant that Western Europeans just thought, well, they must be more like us then because they are as incredible and they have achieved as much as we have. And so they get kind of cast into the banner of whiteness by that token. But of course, you go to Egypt, people have very many different skin tones, and they always have had many different skin tones in Egypt. So there is, um, at the beginning of the book, I talk about this case of Mustafa Hefni, which is this uh, Egyptian man who's, who's living in the US. And he looks, by the way Americans classify people, to be black. He has curly hair like most black Americans. He has darker skin like most black Americans. But he is classified as white by the government. And he has been lobbying to have the government change his classification to black. And they won't do it. (laughs) As far as I'm aware now, it's been a while now since he launched the case. But as far as I'm aware, that hasn't changed, which again speaks to the kind of arbitrariness of this classification. As you said, you know, this is the period of time when this is all sort of kicking off is, you know, the Enlightenment and and the time of, you know, some of the people that Angela, you and I would consider to be like, you know, exemplars of, <laughs> of you know, Charles Darwin is, is heavily implicated here as well, isn't he? Yeah, although I don't think we should pick on Charles Darwin in particular because he really was kind of representative of his time. This was an age, you know, mid-19th century, this was an age in which already these ideas had become hardened. So the Enlightenment had happened. All of these ideas had become kind of fixed into the way that we thought about human difference in, the, in Europe. And 
you know, institutions had been built around the idea that these differences did exist. Slavery, colonialism, all these projects wouldn't have had the power that they did without this idea that there was some biological difference between people, that there was some natural reason that the world looked the way it did and that power hierarchies shook out in this way. And Charles Darwin, even though he was an abolitionist and his family were, you know, the Wedgwoods were famous abolitionists, they really didn't he wrote so powerfully about ending slavery and how brutal it was. But at the same time, he couldn't bring himself to accept that there wasn't some kind of, I hesitate to say evolutionary hierarchy, but some kind of evolutionary difference between people, that some people were lower down this ladder. And again, I'm using 19th century language here because we don't think of there being an evolutionary ladder now. But at that time, there really was this idea that some people were higher up or lower down, including women. Women were kind of slotted into this hierarchy. And he couldn't let go of that. And this is something you see among many people who were abolitionists at that time. There was this sense that slavery should be ended not because we were equal, but because it was morally wrong to treat people this way. And it was almost like this was a gift that should be bestowed by white leaders on black slaves, that freeing them was a kind of benevolent thing to do, not something they were owed as a right, or that something that should be atoned for, or that reparation should be given for what they had suffered, but that this was a kind of gift because of the goodness and generosity of white people. And again, the actual concept of race science is is racing ahead here and people are being classified into ever small groups and, you know, people are running around measuring people's schools and things. And in the book, you... um you pay a trip to Paris, and in the late 19th century in Paris, there was a an exposition where we see something called a human zoo. Tell us what that was. Well, obviously, they weren't called human zoos at the time. It's only in hindsight that we think of them this way. But they were. that's essentially what they were, that like travelling freak shows, but essentially with people uh, from different countries brought together their worlds in a kind of Disney type of way recreated. Have you been to Disney World? In- yes, I've, I've been to the... I can't even remember. I can only think of that Duff, the Duff version of the Simpsons. Um, I went it's a small world young. after all, that yes, thing is yeah. the thing that so you're thinking of, isn't it? I went there when I was very young and I found it kind of um, enchanting because mm. here it really felt... There's a version of Alton very... Towers as well, <laughs> a poorer version of Alton Towers of the similar thing. But we love this idea that you can travel the world in a microcosm, mm. you know, in a warehouse. <laughs> there could be different kind of recreations, stereotypes, yeah, really. But at least animatronic. <laughs> yeah. right. Animatronic stereotypes of each place, you know, and there'll be a little Taj Mahal and there'll be some pyramids over there and there'll be... Every place will have its stereotypes played out. And this is essentially what these human zoos were. They kind of recreated what the popular imagination these places might have looked like and then populated them with people from those places. They weren't slaves, they were performers, but they were treated no better than slaves because they were expected to perform in public, live out their daily lives in public. If they had children, they would be there as well. If they gave birth, that would be a new attraction for these things. And they were very popular across Europe, I have to say, particularly among colonial powers, so Germany, uh, France, Britain all enjoyed this kind of spectacle and the one in Paris that I visited it's quite bizarre that it's still there that this place and it's a ramshackle place it's definitely not advertised you know the French don't kind of brag about it it's kind of hidden away but the buildings are still there they're kind of crumbling away but you can certainly see 
and imagine how it might have looked like at the time. And there are little plaques that explain exactly what it would would have looked like at the time. And this attracted millions of visitors. It was very popular. But again, it speaks to this idea that, you know, here is a great civilization showing you what other places are like, places that are, are not as fortunate as you, people who are not as civilized as you, who are barbaric. And this is how the barbaric people live, treating them like, like animals. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Angela Saini and we're talking about her latest book, Superior, The Return of Race Science. And Angela, we've in the main been talking about the race science of the you know, the late 19th century and we go into the into the 20th century and it's, it's been a subject that's been discussed on this show a lot of times, the age of eugenics and Margaret Sanger and people like that and, you know, the history of various organisations that, you know, H.G. Wells and, you know, people that were like, we're surprised perhaps to learn at a later date were as racist as they were. Um, and then, of course, the Nazis happen. Mm. And all of that stuff becomes a bit less respectable, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and there is, I mean, there is a concerted effort after the Second World War to basically take thought in a different direction. That You know, mm. that that's... That's an idea that should have died in the concentration camps, basically. And it did. I mean, the fact that racism is now unacceptable is a product of that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't unacceptable once upon a time. Hard though that is to believe. And yet, you know, those people that in the 1920s, 1930s were in, you know, universities or organisations perpetuating these ideas, a lot of them are still alive. What happens to these people after the Second World War? Well, as I explain in the book, two things happen. 
Um, firstly, there is, of course, these kind of hardcore scientific racists, people who support segregation in the US, people who may have supported slavery in the past, who very firmly believe that racial mixing is dangerous, that if people of different races have children together, we will end up with these kind of mutants in society and desperately want to stop that from happening. So these hardcore scientific racists, among them, Nazi race scientists. So there's one I talk about in the book, Otmar von Verschua, who was um, a German Nazi race scientist working at one of the most eminent institutions in the country who experimented on the bodies of Auschwitz victims, children among them. After the war, he was barred for teaching temporarily, and then he became a professor of genetics. And this is essentially what happened to these people. Some of them disappeared and they were ostracised and left. Some of them just uh, rebranded themselves. You know, there's another example I give in the book of Reginald Ruggles Gates, who was a botanist here in the UK, and he was quite respectable. He was a member of the Royal Society and professor at King's College London, not very far from here. And after the war, he was still kind of producing, he was trying to reframe genetics through a racial lens. So what would have been eugenics once, in his eyes, became genetics. And he tried to resurrect race science or kind of retain race science within the sciences through using genetics. Now, these people were in a minority, there's no doubt, because of course, society as a whole and the scientific establishment didn't on the whole accept them. But they survived. And they survived to this day. So they set up this publication, Ottoman van Verschua, Reginald Ruggles Gates, a few others, called Mankind Quarterly. And this was a kind of journal that would publish the stuff that other journals wouldn't publish. So the kind of really virulent scientific racism, arguing against racial mixing uh, in favour of segregation in the US. Only the kind of people on the margins of science and psychology, anthropology would publish in this journal. And it's still being published today, which just goes to show that these ideas didn't completely go away. Now, so they, these are the hardcore scientific racists. Mainstream science, meanwhile, kind of purged race from biology. It became unacceptable to look at racial difference in the way that people had before the Second World War. But that isn't to say that the ideas completely disappeared because racism still existed in society. There were still scientists, mainstream scientists, who weren't completely convinced that we weren't different species for instance. And to some extent, what I argue in the book is that this idea that you can group people by population, what we now nowadays call population genetics, and that there are some meaningful differences there between those population, those group level differences are meaningful, is in some ways still a remnant of the old school race science. Now, population geneticists obviously wouldn't see it that way. And many of these post-war population geneticists were avowedly anti-racist. You know, they wore their politics on the sleeve. They argued with the racists, the scientific racists of their day, like William Shockley at Stanford, who was a physicist who thought that black women should be sterilised because their offspring would be naturally inferior to white babies. And they fought with them. But at the same time, within their own work, they didn't completely dismiss the idea of race. They just move the parameters a bit, I would argue, and also the language they use to talk about these things. What's the... I mean, I guess what's the motivation is what I want to ask. Because one imagines, like, a, you know, a, a skinhead going off to Aryan Nations with his, his copy of Stormfront or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that guy, you know, don't think about it too hard. He just played don't like black people. And yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And he don't want to live with them. But 
you know, Mankind Today is not Stormfront, it's a scientific journal. And these people are, to what extent are these people, I guess once upon a time they would have been apologists for empire, for, you know, for colonialism mm. and, mm. you know, would have would have justified slavery and things mm. in that, you know, these people yeah. don't deserve the same considerations that we do. Mm. Nowadays, I guess it's a apologist for, for capitalism. In a way, yes. I mean, I hesitate to call Mankind Quarterly a scientific journal because by any standards, it doesn't meet the criteria. <laughs> you know, it's not peer-reviewed properly. The people who write for it tend not to be scientists. Journal. Yeah, but the people who write in it tend not to be scientists. <laughs> and very, me- very many of them don't have any kind of scientific affiliation whatsoever or academic affiliation. But you whatsoever. do talk about other scientific journals that yes. basically are slightly yes. more like scientific journals, but still yeah. are fundamentally... Promoting race science. There are mainstream journals that share members of editorial boards Mm -hmm. with members of Mankind Quarterly. That's the thing I really worry about because the stuff that's being published in Mankind Quarterly is so beyond the pale. How do they manage to do that? And what are they apologists for? Coming back to your question, they're apologists for the changes in society that we see. So globalisation. They don't want immigration. They don't want any kind of moves towards improving equality, whether that's reservations or quotas, anything like that. No measures to kind of equalise society because they feel that the inequalities in society that we see, and we do see, um, are natural. Mm -hmm. That race isn't a social construct. They say that society is a racial construct. I want to talk about something called, the, while we're talking about those journals, something called the Pioneer Fund and the man that founded that. What is that? Well, so the Mankind Quarterly, how has it managed to survive? How have these kind of scientific racists who can't get funding through normal channels managed to do their work? And the answer is that there are always wealthy men, and they are usually wealthy men out there who are willing to give their money. Um, the Pioneer Fund represents perhaps the biggest of these sources of funding to scientific racists since the Second World War. It was founded by a man called Wycliffe Draper, who was a wealthy American textile heir. He had a huge amount of money. Um, that his family had made through, in part, slavery in the US. And he was very much opposed to desegregation in the US. And he wanted to build up a kind of academic, intellectual case for maintaining segregation. So what he did is he funded the scientific racists who seemed to be making these claims, and he funded the Mankind Quarterly. And the Pioneer Fund has been going until relatively recently, so well into the 21st century. It's only fairly recently I looked into the their fund funding and their source of funds. And it does look like sometime in the last 20 years, it has been drained of funds and possibly disbanded. The editor, the current editor of the Mankind Quarterly told me that they are short of funds. They're looking for a new donor from somewhere, which kind of speaks to this idea that there are donors out there willing to fund it and they believe that these people exist. And of course, now we know because there are all these far right websites on the web who get their funding from somewhere that these sources of funds do exist. Obviously, you know, the idea of the far right is is an extremely current thing. There are people like, you know, Steve Bannon, for instance, who until relatively recently was embedded within the American government. Mm. And again, we might think this is a relatively new thing, but the people we're talking about here gradually wheedled their way into the places of power to the extent that Ronald Reagan, for instance, was consulting these people. So that's something that's been going on for a while as well. It's been there the whole time. It feels like 
it's something new now. Wow, how did this happen? How did ethnic nationalism and the far right become so powerful in such a short space of time? How did Steve Bannon manage to get access to the President of the United States? How did Nigel Farage get to where he is? Well, for the last 70 years, these people have been very carefully and very deliberately tailoring their message, building their cases, infiltrating academia and government to the point where now there is no separation anymore. They are completely within these networks. They communicate with each other all the time. And that goes for not just the US, but also in Britain. The same people that I write about in the book have connections to the top universities in the country. So for example, just this year, a student who'd been granted a very prestigious fellowship at Cambridge University was expelled because it turned out he was writing for the Mankind Quarterly and he had links to extremists. It turned out he had very poor scholarship, which does beg one to wonder how did he get there in the first place. The reason he got there in the first place, I would say, is because not enough checks have been done. We haven't been wary. And also, there are people within these institutions who want people like that there and are relying on our oversight to allow that to happen. And we should be scared. This is not, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, racists were the skinheads, like you talk about. They were the thugs on the street. They were ignorant. And the fight against racism was to educate people. Well, what we know is that there have always been very well-educated racists out there. And having all the education in the world makes no difference to their prejudice. In fact, they use their education to buttress their prejudice, to draw on kind of strange bits of science, you know, pick out little bits from papers here and there, um, manipulate, abuse the research and data that they can find in order to make a case that race is real, that biological race matters, that immigration should be stopped. And they are really clever. Can we talk about one of the alternative theories for a minute? Because obviously it's, you know, it's pretty much settled, we think, nowadays that, you know, all homo sapiens that are alive today came out of various ways small groups of people that you know left africa back in deep time and and presumably the the people that got to australia arrived considerably earlier than the people that arrived in europe but you know fundamentally were were following the same the same sort of routes but there's a theory that's popular with scientific racists that you know on first listen might sound quite benign that people evolved independently in different places around the world and of course there are you know there were once upon a time other species of humans be they neanderthals or denisovans or whatever so let's talk about this idea because it is popular with a surprising groups of people which perhaps we'll get to in a moment it is um so there has it's a kind of idea that has waxed and waned in popularity over the centuries. And it's become popular again now because of the discovery that modern humans interbred with Neanderthals and Denisovans, that we contain some proportion of ancestry, depending on where you live, in different proportions. And perhaps this is somehow meaningful, that perhaps this feeds this idea that we are different breeds somehow, although the extent of that interbreeding was so tight. as to be pretty much inconsequential, but certainly not very consequential. The idea fundamentally is that, like you say, that modern humans evolved not just in Africa, but independently from earlier forms of, say, Homo erectus or other earlier human forms 
in the countries where they are. And this is popular. This is still popular, actually, in China. There's still this view that the Chinese people did not evolve, are not descended from, you know, modern humans who came out of Africa, but that they evolved independently in China. And that this somehow feeds the Chinese origin story that this is our land and we have always been here. But again, I mean, what I land on in the book is that this is always about origin stories. This is always about where we come from. That's what it comes down to ultimately. Who are we really deep down? What does it mean to be who we are fundamentally? And every place in the world has its own narrative about who we are deep down. And that is linked very often to place, obviously, because this is the source of our culture and our social ideas about who we are. So very often you get these biological ideas about who we must be linked to these places. And sometimes these are exploited for nationalist purposes, which is what the Nazis did. They created this idea of a Germanic race. And if they could find evidence, archaeological evidence of this Germanic race, which is a biological idea, but if they could find cultural evidence of it outside of Germany, then they could claim those territories because they would have been there they would have originated there as well. So somehow those territories belong to them. And this is really what it always speaks to. You know, it's all about how can we cement our roots where we are and for that to mean more than just something cultural or political. How can it mean something natural that this place belongs to us deep down? That is what nationalism is. You know, and we saw it play out even in the Brexit debate. I talk about Brexit in the book because at the time that it was happening, you might, might remember the Nigel Farage bus and he stood in front of the bus and there was a big picture of queues of migrants with skin as brown as mine standing there. And he didn't tell us who they were or where they were from. The assumption was these are a queue of people trying to get into Britain who looked like me, who was born in Britain. And the assumption there is that to be ethnically British, you must be white. And everybody else is an interloper, which would make me an interloper then. I cannot ever be British enough, however long I live here, however long my children live here, they will never be British enough because somehow they don't fulfil the ethnic requirements to be British. And this is because we've built narratives around appearance, biological narratives really, around appearance that attach us to a certain place, when in fact those narratives have not been there forever. In fact, when the first, so one of the earliest or oldest intact remains that we have of a British hunter-gatherer, we, I say British, of course, the, these ideas of nation-states are recent ideas, so back then they wouldn't have thought about it in this way, but there's the 9,000-year-old remains of Cheddar Man, which were found in Cheddar Gorge, and when in recent years they've done DNA analysis, and this is something they've only been able to do very recently, they found that it was likely, although it's, it's never for certain with these things, because there are no racial genes, there are no black genes or white genes, there's only statistical probabilities about where you may or who you may have commonalities with. It's likely, though, that he had very dark skin, which by modern standards, and we shouldn't use modern standards because he did not look like people look today. He had blue eyes and dark skin. But by modern standards, he would be considered black mm -hmm. by most people, which is to say, so the earliest, some of the earliest inhabitants of Britain would have been black skinned. <laughs> what does that mean for your ideas of ethnicity? How do you square that with your idea, with your origin story then? What does that mean? And this is what it comes down to, that we keep going further and further back. 
We just keep going further and further back. Where did we come from? How did we evolve? Maybe we can find some attachment to our place if we just go back far enough. The further back you go, the less tangible those connections become. They only become weaker and weaker and weaker. And we become more and more united as a species. And you go back to the dawn of time and we are all the same. One other area to finish off then, and I mean, you mentioned the idea that, you know, a lot of Chinese people are still interested in that idea that various different groupings of of humans might have evolved in different areas of the world. And of course, Hindu nationalists also are keen on this idea. And I raise that just to to get us on to the... The other area that race scientists are really keen on is the idea of intelligence. Mm. And it seems like they've hit on this way of rather than saying, oh, they obviously do say that, you know, white people are more intelligent than black people. But in a more polite way, they've hit on this idea of of looking at Jewish people and (laughs) the Brahmin caste of India are more intelligent than Mm. other groups. Mm. And I mean, I, I, for one, am am shocked, shocked that, you know, the, the top the top cast of an incredibly stratified system might somehow do better than everybody else. This seems seems like an incredible idea. But this is a, it's a, it's a popular it's a popular canard, isn't it? It is. And actually it maps in some ways onto the way we think about class in this mm. country. So there are some people I don't look at this in the book because it's not a book about class as such, although these things overlap heavily. There are people who make the argument in this country that class mobility doesn't happen very much because somehow lower classes are naturally more feckless or less intelligent, you know, whatever trope you want to use. This was very popular in the early eugenics movement in Mm -hmm. this country. And it speaks again to (laughs) this idea that if we breed a certain group of people who have a certain quality together over generations, we will create this kind of super breed of people who who have you know, some quality that the rest of us don't have. I mean, and these the people reason... were all marrying their cousins. So this is sort of like probably why they, they were keen on that idea. <laughs> well, um, and we know in practice that doesn't work for exactly that reason. <laughs> you know, it it's one is quite unhealthy. And we see that in India. There is endogamy practiced in mm. places in India. And when that is practiced in very small communities, you get diseases crop up, some very strange, bizarre, rare diseases. In the, Amongst Parsis, for instance, there are high rates of certain type of cancer, because this is a very small community. And they're encouraged to, in order to maintain their cultural cohesion, to marry each other. And the same with Ashkenazi Jews. Um, there's a greater preponderance of Tay-Sachs, which is a rare but devastating condition. And it happens because of this intermarriage. We know it's not healthy to do this. But, you know, it serves this argument. If we can say, if caste race scientists in the past were very fascinated by caste, Reginald Ruggles Gates, who I mentioned, travelled to India a lot. He was really interested in the idea of caste because for him, for race scientists, of course, India was the perfect breeding ground for this idea. It was already a eugenics paradise because here already in society they had decided to separate certain groups of people through this social stratification and a system reinforced by the British I should say for their own purposes, political purposes. This social stratification and people were encouraged to maintain within those groups and then follow careers or 
um, trades based on the group that they belong to. My family, for instance, on my dad's side, were designated by the British one of the martial races. So my dad's family are all in the military and there was this idea that this is a group of people who've been bred for military excellence. <laughs> they are loyal and they are strong and hardworking and all of this business. Well, already in my dad's generation, my dad was born in 1945, hardly any of them are in the military anymore. They're doctors and engineers and lots of other things. And in my generation, so two generations on, we are completely different things. None of us are in the military either. We are all doing different things. And this is because this idea was never, you know, it was always a social idea. It was always a cultural idea. If there is, there have been studies, I have to say IQ studies are not a very good or reliable source of information in this field because they have tended to be done by people with pre-existing notions looking for certain things. And also you cannot compare IQs of populations because IQ is heavily dependent on culture, environment, upbringing, schooling, all these things. And you can't control for that between populations. But there are these people who say that Ashkenazi Jews have higher IQs and somehow this is natural because they have been bred for it. Well, this is a culture. Here we have a culture that prizes education, that, you know, encourages young people to read and to be educated. Could that not be part of it? <laughs> there are other cultures in which that doesn't happen. But we see all over the world that when people are given a chance, when they step outside these boxes that society has placed around them, they do the same as everybody else, lo and behold. And we've seen in India, there was a study done that I talk about in Superior, where American researchers looked at the performance levels of people who were given certain government jobs because they were of lower caste. So they were reserved these jobs. And there have been complaints that, oh, these people won't do so well because they're lower caste and they, you know, they don't have the right qualities and natural qualities to do these jobs. They do just as well if not better than everybody else, which is exactly what you would expect. Because you see talent and skill and capability spread across populations in the same kind of measures as you would expect any other kind of trait to be spread across populations or any kind of complex psychological trait to be spread across populations. There may be slight variances there, which we don't know about, because like I said, it's very difficult to measure these things. But in general, there is no reason to think there's no reason to assume that intelligence will be somehow concentrated in certain populations and others because it benefits us all to be intelligent. And so the evolutionary pressure on us all would have been presumably around the same. Plus, it wasn't that long ago that we all migrated out of Africa anyway. So how could these differences be so? But, you know, I can go on about justifying this, but... Ultimately, what do, what do these narratives serve? Again, they serve this kind of dominance power hierarchy ideas that some people come from, as somebody told me, the editor of Mankind Quarterly told me, there are low IQ countries and high IQ countries. We should only have immigrants from the high IQ countries. And guess what? The high IQ countries happen to be white <laughs> and the low IQ countries happen to be brown and black. Well, you know, I don't buy it. What a coincidence. <laughs> what a coincidence. I've been talking to Angela Saini. We've been talking about her new book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, which is out in the UK from Forty State. Angela, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Thank you. I'd loved it. Thanks. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.